Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This is a special episode of this show. It's an episode not only about the biggest story of the decade so far, COVID-19 or the coronavirus, but it's also an episode with someone I've been wanting to have on this show for quite some time, and that someone is Garnet Kindervater. Now, I will introduce Garnet in just a minute, but first of all, a few observations about the politics of the coronavirus itself. Now, I don't know if it's fair to say that viruses have a politics, but their human victims certainly do. And as some of you may have been following, we've seen a big debate break out this week over a piece on the virus by Giorgio Agamben. Garnet and I don't actually talk about Agamben in this interview. At the time, we were only just becoming aware of the debate, but I want to talk a little bit about it before we get started, as I think it's relevant to the interview you're about to hear. Uh, For listeners who haven't been following this, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some of the replies that have been published to Agamben. So far, for me, uh, two have stood out, and I want to mention them now as I think they'll perhaps help listeners to the show better understand the value of the interview. Okay, Agamben's basic position on coronavirus seems to be something like an extreme take on the libertarian left's impulse to read the state or state sovereignty as a technology of control in and of itself. And so for Agamben, living in Italy in the midst of the state's effort to control the coronavirus, there seems to be a natural connection between the way the state is expressing its power right now, isolating large portions of the population, and his overall thesis that since the terrorist attacks in New York in 2001, government has become something like a permanent state of exception. Here's a quote from his blog post on coronavirus. It is blatantly evident that these restrictions are disproportionate to the threat from what is, according to the NRC, a normal flu, not much different from those that affect us every year. We might say that once terrorism was exhausted as a justification for exceptional measures, the invention of an epidemic could offer the ideal pretext for broadening such measures beyond any limitation. So look, this is a uh, controversial statement. I'm not myself an epidemiologist, but then again, neither is a Gambon. So I'm not really sure how to take his statement. According to the New York Times, the death rate among those contracting the seasonal flu is typically about... um, 0.1% in the United States, whereas estimates of the death rate among those contracting COVID-19 in China have varied between 1.4% and 2.3%. So obviously that's quite a difference with the seasonal flu. In the literature, there's a lot of commentary about regional variation and things like that, but the bottom line is that Agamben does here seem to be trivializing the matter to a degree that I think could be considered irresponsible or perhaps even negligent. Now, of course, that's not to discredit Agamben's intellectual program necessarily. There's a long history of theorists making bad calls on specific controversies. But let's take a moment here to consider some of the replies that his blog post has provoked. 
The first piece that I thought was worth mentioning is by Slavoj Žižek in a piece published on the blog The Philosophical Salon on March 16th. Žižek rebukes Agamben for what amounts to, and I quote, an extreme form of a widespread leftist stance of reading the exaggerated panic caused by the spread of the virus as a mixture of power exercise of social control and elements of outright racism. For Zizek, however, Agamben's folly is not in the same breath an excuse for a return to some kind of authoritarian state or business as usual. To the contrary, it's a demand for a new democratic form of communism. Whatever the successes of China in combating COVID-19, he says, we should be clear, the old communist model encourages corruption. The lesson to be learned here is therefore something else. This something else, I think, is one of the constant themes, in fact, of this show, the show you're listening to right now. Longtime listeners will have heard me ramble sometimes about something called socialist governmentality. This is a phrase coined by Foucault, though never really fully developed. What he seems to do towards the end of birth of biopolitics is suggest that socialism has always had to turn to liberalism or totalitarianism for its model of government. A true socialist governmentality in this sense has yet to be invented. So the question then is, what would this look like? In a coming episode, I'm going to be talking a bit more about this question with Danish scholar Magnus Paulsen Hansen. For now, though, the point, as Zizek indicates, is to recognize the challenge of creating a form of collective action that recognizes the need for expertise in the face of complexity, globalization, etc., while simultaneously embedding this expertise in transparency, coordination, and collaboration. Now, the second piece that I wanted to draw attention to is perhaps more controversial, but I think it gives some flesh to Zizek's observation. It's a piece by Panagiotis Sotiris called Against Agamben, Is a Democratic Biopolitics Possible? Now, it's not always easy to grasp the difference between governmentality and biopolitics, and there's an intimate relationship between the two. For me, however, it's critical to note that the project of governmentality precedes biopolitics. And one can even say, if we read Foucault's lectures, that if governmentality sort of presents the basic question of how the state can arrange the conduct of populations, in quotes, without a sting, uh, biopolitics is the basic proposition made by liberalism, that optimal social behaviors can be achieved by means of market-based tools. That is, for example, in neoliberalism, that changes to behavior can be achieved by incentivizing subjects to develop certain relations with their own human capital through changes in various marketplace dynamics, interest rates, bankruptcy laws, smoking bans, various legal punishments that involve jail time or don't, etc. So in a sense, this should all leave us in a very cynical place about biopolitics. And fair enough. After all, it's at its core, a technology of cajoling from us, the performance of a way of being that is suited really only for capitalist markets. And we were never asked if we wanted to live this way. But I suppose the question here for me, the question that is of democratic biopolitics, is whether all use of markets to this effect is anti-democratic. For Sotiris, the COVID-9 crisis produces the question, what if there was a rationale for a democratic people to create their own machinery of, well, to put it crudely, behavioral control? As he puts it, 
What we are talking about here is the need for behavioral modifications from below. And for Sotiris, the great example of this is the ACT UP movement, the political movement that is formed by gay men in the 1980s in the struggle against HIV, which fought, at least partially, for mastery of the disease through changing behavior. Behavioral change then really based on the accumulation of better data about the disease. A similar, though more trivial, example of the democratic use of markets can be found in Peter Fraser's discussion of parking spaces in the book For Futures. But for Sotiris, in the context of COVID-19, such measures can even include the use of state power and coercion being used to channel resources from the private sector to socially necessary directions. So these really then are two complex replies to Agamben. And now maybe just one more recommendation a recent article from the website Cosmonaut called Stealing Fire from the Gods. There was actually a great discussion on this article recently on the podcast General Intellect Unit. And the author, Amelia Davenport, makes a number of points that I think are highly relevant to this Agamben coronavirus controversy. Too often, she says, the left falls into an initiative and incentive model of organizing, which claims to be radically democratic, but which in practice is often anything but. I think we all know the story here. Burnout, bullying, cancel culture, all bespeaking really the potential tyrannies of horizontalism. Therefore, as she puts it, we do need something like, and I quote, a democratic scientific mass line. That is the collaborative creation of democratic systems for activating and orienting ourselves in socialist strategy. So what we have here then is perhaps a contrast. On the one hand, this, for want of a better term, neoliberal model of activism adopted by Occupy Wall Street, and on the other, this socialist biopolitics or democratic biopolitics. Foucault always warned us not to succumb to the blackmail of having to be entirely for or against political concepts. Liberalism certainly invented biopolitics, but maybe we shouldn't let it have the last word. A socialist governmentality might use biopolitics, but it might use it differently. It might use it more democratically, and I think that's the point. All right then, time to shut up. I'm so delighted to have garnered on this show. This was a hugely productive conversation for me, and I'm excited that we'll be doing another episode on this topic soon. Let me just now introduce Garnet. He is a critical and political theorist whose writing explores the concepts of life, time, and catastrophe. He teaches political and theoretic geography at Dartmouth College and is completing a book entitled Catastrophe and Human Survival, A Theory of Catastrophism, which outlines a contemporary political rationality preoccupied with future disasters. Garnet has published on the notion of catastrophic thought, friction produced between ontology and epistemology, and also a number of pieces on the philosopher Gilles Deleuze. In this interview, which was recorded on Saturday, March 14th, 2020, against the background of an intensifying sense of social emergency caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, we talk about catastrophe and political rationality, science fiction and pop cultural representations of catastrophe, critical security theory in international relations, the politics of cancelling academic conferences, Naomi Klein and the popular left critique of neoliberal catastrophe, socialist governmentality, and mental health. A quick note before we get started in the interview, I ask Garnet about a chapter of his, Catastrophe and Catastrophic Thought. 
That actually is printed in the 2018 volume Biopolitical Disaster, edited by Jennifer Lawrence and Sarah Marie Wiebe. Uh, you can find the link to that volume in the show notes. And you will also hear me in the episode make reference to an episode of uh, the podcast War Nerd. And I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Okay, here's the interview. Well, hey, Garnet, welcome to the show. Um, so just to get us started, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about who you are and uh, where you're living and what you're doing. And I don't normally start the show like this, but but you live in a major city, New York, and you happen to teach on the politics of disasters. So I just have to ask you, like, what what's it been like for you both working on this stuff academically, teaching this stuff, all in a kind of a real-time crisis situation. I, I can imagine just even like daily aspects of your life are difficult, but also, you know, in the classroom, you've got worried students. How are you sort of juggling all of this? Well, it's uh, it's it's been a strange time, I think, for everyone anyway. Um, but the, the class is really about um, catastrophes, across different sort of valences of time. Um, so we study historic, historic events, catastrophic events, uh, and we study a lot of philosophy and philosophical social sciences that try to explore the dynamics of what it is to think about future catastrophes um, as a sort of fundamental central problem to what it means to be alive when we are told that the very worst things that could happen to us um, uh, are unpreventable in their very nature. And uh, in, in actuality, uh, if that's the right word, uh, a politics of security that operates around this idea of a future catastrophe, um, if you think about it, the catastrophe itself literally has no reality yet. And so the course, it's called Catastrophe and Human Survival, sort of grapples with this problem and kind of toggles back and forth between historic events uh, and also historic instances of trying to circumvent uh, future disasters and thinks about the philosophical problems that are attendant to it. And oftentimes, um, in a kind of weird way, the effect on students is uh, a very deeply resonating experiential um, kind of orientation to learning that in most events, governments were incapable of responding. And when the coronavirus, I, I guess, started to come to light as something that we should think about, we were right in the middle of a unit on pandemic. And I'm teaching this course at Hunter College, uh, which is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and everybody in the class is from New York City. I mean, they're uh, a population of people who are almost inherently tough, you know. Uh, right. I, I hesitate to use the word resilience because I have a, a feeling of where this conversation right. is going to go. But, uh, <laughs> but, sure. but the truth is, you know, they're, they're people who have grown up, um, you know, there are only two students in the course who were not alive when September 11th happened, but they grew up in this sort of shadow or the, almost a myth of um, being constantly 
vulnerable to a surprise event that would either endanger them directly uh, or would uh, threaten to collapse the infrastructure that keeps their lives moving, their families at work, you know. Uh, and um, what happened in the room was we went from essentially thinking about pandemic as an outlying set of circumstances to something that was literally animating everything around us. And the panic was palpable. Um, right. And then um, the last time I saw them was uh, on Monday, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just five days ago. And I, I just sort of out of nowhere was like, I, you know, I don't know when or if I will see you again, because it seems like uh, we might move to a different kind of format, which we did. And um, I get emails from them, you know, uh, they're, they're nervous, just like everyone. Um, but I can't, I can't but think that their awareness of catastrophe through the class and the experience of it didn't heighten some of that um, sense of insecurity, you know. That's got to be uh, a burden on your mind at this time as well as everything else. You know, the responsibility of the teacher teaching this stuff is it's, it's no small, trivial matter. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your academic work. Um, I guess I just want to ask you, in a a sense, a a simple question, but I'm sure the answer is nothing but simple. But what is catastrophism? You were kind enough to send me a chapter for a book that you were working with, um, an edited volume, I believe. And the title of the chapter is what is the catastrophe in the mind? And the title alone just jumped out at me. It, it reminded me sort of uh, Foucault's claim that, you know, we've yet to cut off the head of the king in our mind. And you cite the German poet Hans Magnus Enzenberger, Ennisberger, forgive me if I don't pronounce that correctly, but he wrote in 1978 of modern society's relation to catastrophe is so totalizing that it has become a kind of second reality. So, Maybe we can just start there. What is this catastrophe of the mind or in the mind? Yeah. So the piece, um, the actual title of the piece is catastrophe and catastrophic thought. And, and it, it asks that question, uh, right in the introductory paragraphs, uh, I guess sort of riding on the back of Enzenzberger is how, uh, it's pronounced. Um, Thank you. uh, trying to think about the way that our, the knowledge of some sort of terrible event uh, almost foretold comes to preoccupy human beings. And it, it gives human beings an orientation, not just to uh, the belief of um, the certainty of some kind of terrible event from uh, that will uh, occur, um, but an orientation also to mortality uh, to the, um, I guess at best the stretched, uh, possible, the stretched, um, um, impossibility of security. And, uh, it introduces a set of questions about, uh, what happens to things like, uh, orientations to strategy, uh, to, um, proaction, 
does it create uh, modalities of contemporary subjectivity that are reactive and not reactive to actual states of affairs, uh, but reactive to essentially a belief. Um, and so that's the catastrophic thought part, which corresponds to catastrophism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, that's mm -hmm. essentially catastrophism in my reading um, of the concept. Um, but catastrophe, um, the other part of the couplet, mm -hmm. comes to be something that is an abstraction in and of itself. Because if we exist in this kind of subjectivity that is um, riddled with the understanding that something uh, terrible will happen, we have a litany of different possibilities of what what could actually occur. And so we catastrophists tend to collapse those things, you know, uh, each one of those sorts of events is in and of itself, highly improbable, uh, a terrorist attack, uh, a pandemic, you know, um, uh, an economic collapse, um, uh, all, all in sundry of, you know, so-called natural disasters. And, uh, when taken, uh, in their totality, these highly improbable sorts of events become entirely probable under the banner of catastrophe. And so catastrophism corresponds to this uh, mm. deeply, uh, it's, it's a metaphysical problem, but it's also a deeply political problem of our failure to be able to uh, relate correspond to and prevent events that in and of themselves have no reality because of their, uh, their existence only in the future. And it's almost like we have to, as human beings, um, uh, find within ourselves some sort of way of being that allows us some kind of flexibility, uh, and some sort of ability to imagine ourselves as being able to respond to events whenever they occur, whatever they are, uh, in order to feel capable to have some sort of nimbleness to the unexpected. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the next question then I suppose is reading the piece. Um, and I, obviously I'm not as steeped in this as you are. So, so forgive me if I'm taking a wrong turn here, but you, you're making a distinction in the piece between catastrophization and catastrophism. And the former seems to be, this is catastrophization, seems to be about the politics of the rhetoric of the exception or, or how politics, um, or a politics rather of how authority calls on us, demands us to act in the face of some phenomena, past, present, future, that we won't be able to tolerate. Whereas the latter, catastrophism, seems to be kind of more tentative and maybe even more cultural because it's a, it's, it's a, something that's maybe haunting us, a, a worry, um, something that's left us on edge or alert to the possibility that, that this moment may come, that authority may be about to, or someday soon may call on us to act. And you cite a number of different scholars here, two that stand out are Dupuy and, and Neyrat, uh, who say that, you know, often in this culture, we might even find ourselves mocking these people as conspiracy theorists, doomsayers, purveyors of a legitimate madness. But that in the same sense, this 
sort of um, bubbling discourse almost inevitably becomes the foundations of what may yet then become this exceptional discourse, this catastrophization discourse. So there's obviously a tension for you in the paper. You spend a lot of time fleshing it out between these two literatures. What What's at stake for you there? What's, what's compelling about this tension? Well, uh, I think the first thing to know is that um, Dupuy and Neyra are French. Um, and yeah. uh, in the French language, uh, catastrophist, a catastrophist has an everyday meaning. Um, it's not, um, you know, it's not, uh, academic jargon. Uh, it literally means to be a, a doomsayer. Uh, it's the people you see on the street corner with a sandwich board that says the end is nigh. Um, that's a catastrophist. And, um, both Dupuy and Neyra advocate for catastrophism, uh, of, a, mm -hmm. a, of different sorts, but, um, Neyra is, um, the author of the couplet legitimate madness. Um, he thinks that there is some form of catastrophism that could be adapted to a radical, uh, eco politics, um, to be short about it. Uh, and Dupuy, uh, who Nairad distances himself from in some ways, um, is advocating for uh, what he calls an enlightened catastrophism, um, which is ado adopting the, the personage almost of this street corner doomsayer, but uh, in a very calculated manner. Um, for Dupuy, what an enlightened catastrophism is, is literally a ruse or a trick, uh, where we would be capable under the banner of this enlightened way of uh, thinking about the future of convincing ourselves that the future is real enough that we have to act. Um, and for him, this is a way of displacing a kind of common sense metaphysics to use his language. Um, that's, we believe, he thinks, um, modern, especially technocratic modern people believe that we can always have uh, a chance to modify our path uh, to the future through ingenuity, um, innovation, these kinds of things. And so it's uh, that for him, modern thought um, boils down to a human relationship to time that uh, enables human beings to look to the future and say, um, uh, we may very well produce the worst case scenario ourselves, but we also have the tools um, to be able to outflank that path, um, you know, through those uh, modern capacities of innovation, monopoly of nature by science and those sorts of things. So it's important that for both of those people, catastrophism is not a bad word. Uh, that, that what they're trying to do is empty the concept of the street level, um, you know, sort of madman, uh, and, and, and to, and to create a, to create a, for Neyra, certainly a politics for Dupuy, it's less of a politics, I think, but, um, more of an alteration of the subjective relationship that we have to ourselves, um, through what we believe about what we're capable of, um, 
And uh, so in the piece, what I'm trying to do is to almost create a literature uh, which doesn't exist around this word of catastrophism in order to move beyond that and toward my own theory of catastrophism. And that, that was necessary uh, in, a, in an, an academic and theoretic way, but also uh, a concept, uh, for reasons of conceptual clarity to distinguish from people like Adio Fear, uh, Antonio Vasquez Arroyo, who write about the political um, capacity to uh, almost call into being certain types of vulnerable populations. And in so doing to uh, create a sense of urgency around political action uh, because those populations have been produced as such um, as in need of intervention. And um, Ophir thinks that this is a profoundly governed, you know, in, in a Foucauldian sense, this is a form of governmentality that organizes a population in order to uh, almost keep it in a suspended, um, suspended condition of uh, constant intervention. For Vasquez Arroyo, he thinks that uh, catastrophization works uh, in a way that um, depoliticizes, de-democratizes, and uh, you know, almost reifies a certain kind of authoritarian power just by virtue of uh, some ex executive capacity to say, if you don't fall in line behind me, we all will die or this, you know, uh, he begins by talking about Obama in 2008 saying, um, you know, we have to take drastic measures or economic cat catastrophe will take place, you know? Um, and so, uh, all four of those figures in my reading are enormously valuable, uh, thinkers for thinking about the politics of what it means, um, to be alive at a time when this, uh, to return to Enzensberger, this preoccupation with our own mortality from some mysterious future set of events is always in the foreground. Um, but that their theories uh, all work differently and illuminate different features of what that uh, mode of existing in that kind of time um, would look like. Uh, and... Uh, what I think the value of what I'm trying to do with catastrophism is, is that uh, none of them really are able to supply uh, a philosophy of rationality or, or even just a rationale for how this works and, and why that preoccupation seems to loom so um, presently in people's uh, experiences of their own lives. So I, I want to come back to that maybe later in the interview, because I think in a sense, I'm almost hearing you at the end there saying that your, your goal is to kind of create a more rigorous uh, critique of this way in which we and, and with with absolutely, you know, in, in a forgivable way, we, we tend to sort of be doomsayers, I think, in our own right sometimes of 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 the way political power rationalizes our lives um especially deploying these kinds of alibis of catastrophe um as it goes i mean very very obvious after 9 11 for example that there was a politics uh, of catastrophe at work um, 2008 as you just mentioned a, a politics of catastrophe clearly at work that legitimizes an exception that legitimizes um you know an, an expert power to 
suspend democracy, to take control of a situation. Um, but another question kind of formulates itself for me as I'm as I'm talking to you uh, and listening to this sort of distinction between these two types of catastrophic discourses, which is maybe the, the idea of a third literature. And I know you're also very interested in science fiction. It, it seems a lot of our uh, social um, energy is devoted to finding entertainment in um, in catastrophe, in thinking almost even about apocalypse and post-apocalyptic scenarios. Um, do you see a, a connection between this sort of pop cultural moment and the way in which uh, political power finds legitimation for these sort of suspensions of, 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 of the normal? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, for me, like the way that art gets made, whether it is, you know, literary or cinematic, um, especially when it's made commercially uh, or it's marketed en masse, is that it finds a, a resonance with an audience. Uh, I think it's mm -hmm. like, a, I think it's, you know, a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking that you have this singular figure of the author, for example, who sits in her or, or his or, or their, you know, room, like and Machiavellian mm -hmm. is robes by candlelight, uh, you know, creating some uh, piece of magnificence rather than being a subject who has been produced culturally uh, in a moment. And the what is possible for the author uh, is something that's already available culturally for us. And, um, you know, Claudia Erdow and Rens van Munster uh, wrote the first book about catastrophes um, in a theoretic way from the standpoint of international relations scholars writing about security. Uh, it's called The Politics of Catastrophe. It's a, a wonderful book. Uh, and in passing, they, uh, um, they, they say something really fascinating, which is uh, it's really only after 9-11 um, that you see the uh, evaporation of a certain kind of catastrophic narrative, which was profoundly modern in its typology, you know, which, which is like the Armageddon model, you know, there's an asteroid coming toward earth, uh, a society mobilizes, sends Ben Affleck to it, you know, uh, in order to prevent this, uh, this kind of, um, end of the world, worst case scenario. After 9-11, films, novels, uh, start to tend to begin after the catastrophe. It's no longer about, uh, you know, this, um, grand scale project to prevent something that seems inevitable. Uh, but it, um, it, they become meditations on, uh, either the cause, um, of something that had already happened or a meditation on what it means to be alive, uh, during, you know, during the aftermath, like, uh, Cormac McCarthy's the road is a quintessential example of this. You know, there's just a, a, a man and his son walking through the, the detritus of some event. We don't know what the event is. Um, and, uh, the world, the survivors of that world have essentially divided into two sort of, 
um, you know, classic camps of the self-interested and avaricious and those just trying to make it to this beach, you know, um, we don't know why it's the beach, uh, but it is a question that hangs in the background of the narrative. What happened, you know? Um, but the reader doesn't, isn't asked to wonder about what could have been done the cause of the, of the problem is a foregone conclusion and you don't even have to know what it is. <laughs> another, another example that I, I, we've talked about in an, on another occasion, Margaret Atwood's, uh, writing like Oryx and Crake, you know, b- begins from a really similar setting almost, you know, you have this man who is living on a beach and you, you only learn out, you learn through the course of the narrative, what it is that brought this about. Uh, and Atwood then organizes that as a kind of critique of, um, masculinity and scientific determinism, but never is it a question of what could have been done. Um, and, uh, and I think that that says a lot about, the pulse of where art making is, you know, or where the imagination is or, um, where collectively people who wonder about the, um, the inner life of human beings are right now, (laughs) you know, it, it tells us that Mm -hmm. the meditation is on, um, what life will be like when our, uh, our inevitable future comes to pass and, not sure if that really answers the question, but no, it's it's good. Actually, it's a good segue because I was also going to ask you maybe a question I should have asked a moment ago, uh, which is how we, as IR theorists, a lot of the people who listen to this show know, are, are, you know, will know the names of the scholars you've been discussing just a moment ago, uh, Claudia Aradau, a lot won't because I, I think a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to the show are c- coming from other backgrounds. Some of them aren't even academics, but may- maybe we can just even stop a moment and set up, um, you know, the way you and I are sort of part of or orbiting uh, a segment of a discipline in international relations theory that is very concerned with the way security narratives are deployed and the way certain objects and problems become securitized, the process through which our lives are securitized. Um, you know, you're trying to add something to that conversation. And maybe just for a moment, for, for listeners that are less familiar, we can elaborate what that might be. Yeah, I mean, for me, people like uh, Aradal, Van Munster. There, there also are a lot of, um, I would say, critical security theory people who find themselves in other disciplines: uh, geography, anthropology, sociology, uh, even mm-hmm. some people in the humanities, um, gender studies, uh, that um, have been talking about for. I guess in some uh, sociology of how securitization occurs. I mean, that's a, I think almost the subdiscipline of security studies. Um, my issue, 
um, with this literature, uh, my, my critique, and it's a, it's a, um, an amicable critique is that security also happens outside the confines of experts, um, outside, we, um, should be writing a study of human security that is not just about security professionals and their activities, um, not just about agents of risk management, uh, and we should be able to think and study security in terms of a more general uh, landscape of the effects of knowledge and power over the ways that human beings live their lives. And so in my own work, I've, I guess, tarried with the idea that I do international security as a disciplinary orientation at all, because um, I'm interested in the cultural production of how human beings think about um, human life as a category of value. And oftentimes outside of the formal institutional operations of security. And um, you know, my hope is that that would be productive for the project of security studies. Um, but I, uh, I have my doubts that is or would ever be viewed as a, you know, a valid project within the more formal confines of international relations, precisely because it is more mm. cultural, uh, in nature and, uh, closer to the ground in terms of the philosophical questions about what it means to be alive in a given time when security well, is the, right. the most prevalent, uh, question that many people have, uh, about the quality of their lives. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, let's stay with the the IR universe for just a second. Um, it goes without saying, listeners may not know this, but you and I were both scheduled to go to um, the major annual conference of the International Studies Association, which uh, had it not been cancelled, would be would be happening next week. Um, there's been a number of academic conferences cancelled. There's been a number of private industry conferences cancelled. I just wondered, given your work in teaching catastrophe and, and reflecting on these issues, how these moments, how these decisions appear to you? Um, do they... Do they relate in some way to this tension between these literatures of catastrophization and catastrophism? Um, is that pushing it too much? Uh, how do these sort of like quotidian, in a sense, banal decisions, like obviously who cares about an IR conference, right? But, you know, writ large, this is a sociological phenomena. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's something that to me... <sighs> I think that the administrative actors of the International Studies Association and organizations similar to it um, mm -hmm. have – they're in moments like this, they're put in a really strange bind um, because they have two responsibilities. Uh, yeah. And because it is a, um, a professional organization uh, that's – literally operates only to sustain uh, the scholarly conversation between uh, 
human beings uh, of a certain um, set of interests. They have a responsibility in a moment like a pandemic uh, to the physical health and well-being of their constituents. But they also have a, a clear responsibility um, to the institution of, um, of the association itself. And uh, this seems on the surface to be not nearly as important as the lived well-being of its constituents, obviously. Uh, but if you think about the future of an organization, um, it, there is a lot of money at stake in canceling a conference um, when insurance won't kick in, for example. Uh, and they have, I think, a not illegitimate concern for the future of what it is that organizes that group of scholars you know, as it is as a scholarly organization. And so I, my, my impression is that a lot of organizations like this, um, the Western political science association is happening just a few weeks after ISA was supposed to, uh, I know that they're having these, um, discussions too. um, the AAG, which is the international uh, geography association canceled their annual, uh, conference. And my um, un understanding talking to some people who are connected to the operations of these um, conferences is that they were hoping that people would voluntarily uh, remove themselves if they saw fit, um, but that they had to wait uh, for something like an emergency to to be declared, those sorts of things, to kick in clauses in their contracts with vendors, with hotels, um, the, you know, those kinds of things in order to not lose um, the nest egg essentially for, for the organization. And it seems to me that as disappointing as that seems on the surface, because uh, one, it's easy to say to, an, to the executive level of an organization like that, you're not caring about the physical welfare of your people. Um, but, uh, it makes sense that they would say, we have to wait so that we can have this next year. We can have it five years from now, rather than bankrupting the organization, because we wanted to give the appearance, uh, that we were, um, you know, attending to people's welfare before, you know, the welfare of the institution, which is, a, which is an interesting set of problems, you know? Um, and I think that, uh, it, it, the truth is, is that as academics, we, no one's forcing us to go to these things anyway. I mean, pe right. people, uh, people can opt not to go. And, uh, it seemed, seems to me that ISA did the right thing in waiting and then canceling when they, when they could. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, even begin to know how you would, uh, address that kind of issue. <laughs> Just, uh, I take my hat off to people who've taken that on. I would not want to be in their shoes. Um, obviously I think people will always, will still, excuse me, remember, um, the cancellation of the EISA in Turkey a few years ago and, uh, you know, how publicly, um, that was debated, um, in various online fora. Um, the organizers themselves were often, part of that debate. Um, and I just, you know, you, you could just tell how painful it was for them at the time. So I, I do have a certain respect for people who 
who've endured that kind of difficulty. It's a burden. I think there's, but, um, sorry. Yeah, please, I ahead. think there's another, in, another important thing to say though, which is, um, not everyone engages with these organizations in the same way. And there are a, a lot of, uh, members of organizations like the International Studies Association who are precarious in their very lives because of their profession, which is represented by this organization. And in a weird um, uh, sort of inverse proportionality, the more precarious people are, the more reason they would have to go to the conference um, to, to be counted, um, to uh, network and make connections while they're on, on the job market looking for things really as simple as being able to have health care. And uh, it's, uh, you know, at the, at the top of the pecking order and, and disciplines, you have people whose universities have fronted the bills uh, for them to go. Uh, it's really easy at almost no loss um, for them to say, you know, for my own welfare, I'm going to, I'm going to opt out. And, uh, so I, th I think when you think about also the behavior and decision-making of those organizations, that should at least be a part of the calculus, uh, about whether or not they had in mind the people who are most vulnerable to the power and sway of the professional organization. In that case, it doesn't seem like they did. That should be said. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult for a lot of people then. Um, well, staying with that kind of theme, but shifting the focus a little bit, um, uh, there's already, uh, so as you would say, a sort of a, a popular left discourse around catastrophe. And I'm thinking about scholars like Naomi Klein, um, who warn us that, you know, that the powers that be um, are lying in wait uh, for the moment when these catastrophes come along and they know they're coming. They don't know when, they don't know what exactly their nature will be, but when they do come, they're ready and they deploy, whether it's the assassination of Allende in Chile, whether it's Hurricane Katrina, a uh, stock market crash, they use the cover of the emergency to uh, re-engineer through a kind of a shock and awe technique, um, societal governance and like to or want to introduce their 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 preferred strategies, their preferred ways of of regulating society, um, oftentimes to suit very material interests. Um, in the context of the current U.S. primary cycle, and I and I maybe this is a kind of a uh, an unfair question because I'm springing it on you here in, in some ways, but you know we're about to go into uh the next tuesday cycle of debates we're recording this on on saturday march 14th there's there's debates coming up there's a there's a debate coming up tomorrow there's a primary coming up on saint patrick's day which is tuesday march 17th um i noticed yesterday that louisiana had announced that it was going to suspend its primary which i think was scheduled for april 4th and um it's generating a kind of a wide range of reactions on Twitter among left-wing commentators, shall we say. Um, some uh, seem to be reading this in precisely the kind of Naomi Klein 
lens. In fact, I think even Naomi Klein herself put a tweet out about it that this is, you know, just dreadful. You know, this is a cynical act of voter suppression. You cannot move a primary. Um, I find myself sort of scratching my head at that going sort of the opposite direction that surely to God, the real voter suppression here would be to actually go ahead with the primaries, especially the ones coming up on Tuesday in Ohio and elsewhere, which, you know, are, are by no means unscathed by uh, coronavirus outbreak. So this contradiction here, you know, on the one hand, we uh, seem to sort of see anything that the state does in terms of moving a vote or rescheduling a primary is kind of somehow indicative of this um, disaster capitalism. But on the other hand, there seems to be a genuine demand from the population for some kind of um, um, institutional response um, that preserves democracy, that um, you know, makes sure that people have their franchise. And there seems to be a, a concern that, you know, asking thousands of people in a number of states to show up at primary polling locations, many of which are in old folks' homes, whatever, uh, you know, that, that that would actually be the greater harm. Um, this is difficult ter terrain to navigate, isn't it? Uh, we are in the middle of a significant global event that yeah. is contagious and more contagious the more concentrated groups of people are in, in direct proximity to one another. I can't think of a single reason why uh, anyone on the left that has a concern for human beings and their lives would think that people should be queuing up in polling stations right now, especially because we don't know the full extent uh, to how virulent this disease is. I think I heard it. Tell me if, if I'm wrong, but Louisiana proposed to move the primaries to the summer, like July or something, June or July. Yeah. Louisiana, I think has <clears throat> proposed, proposed moving it. I, I, I could be wrong, but I think it was May actually, May. but uh, let's, let's say it was June. <laughs> I mean, to me, uh, right now is a moment when, um, People, especially people over 50 years old, um, ought to be isolating themselves, I think. Um, I, I have no practical experience with um, trying to administer elections. I, uh, but it doesn't seem... I, I think if, if the policies were reversed and Louisiana or other sites were um, encouraging people to engage in the democratic process by queuing yeah. up to vote on a Tuesday, that we also would be shaking our heads at uh, how negligent that is. Yeah, um, yeah. I suppose it's the history of Louisiana's relationship with uh, especially the African-American franchise, you know, that, that that's probably what people are thinking about uh, as they reflect on this, you know, there's a lot of skullduggery that's gone on historically in states like that. Absolutely. Uh, that notwithstanding, uh, the African-American population of Louisiana uh, is one of the poorest in the nation. Uh, yeah. uh, one of the, um, one of the largest populations uh, without immediate access to health care. 
um, I, I, I just think you can read it both ways. Uh, mm -hmm. anyone that knows, uh, New Orleans that knows the story of Katrina knows the gross abandonment of the African-American population there, um, mm -hmm. for even years after hurricane Katrina, uh, still to so some true. extent to this day. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine, um, being, uh, being a resident of the lower ninth ward or the seventh ward of new Orleans and having some faith that, um, an elections board, uh, would have my best interest in mind. I, I, I can't imagine that that's true. Yeah. 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 Um, on a more quotidian level, you know, there's, there's the question of how different, uh, states are responding to, uh, a crisis. And here in the United States, um, already just, you know, among my colleagues at work here on the Texas border, um, and in, in various sort of social groups that I'm part of, whether it's people at my gym or in uh, my local Democratic Socialists of America chapter, um, there are ongoing conversations um, about this thing called social distancing. Um, it's a way of supposedly mitigating the spread of the disease. But I'm struck, Garnet, <laughs> I have to say, by the sort of quintessentially neoliberal sounding nature of that concept. <laughs> and, and listeners to this show, previous episodes will know that I maybe have particular views on neoliberalism. I see it as a, a political program that seeks to turn us into very idealistic, uh, self-reliant subjects of late capitalism. So the idea to me of social distancing uh, sounds problematic. And, um, I I'm struggling with this because I also know that it, it probably is good for my health as well, but it, it just seems a little bit too much to me, like the, the, the see something, say something mantra that, you know, was everywhere after nine 11 and is so commonly invoked in, in the context of terrorism scares. Um, oftentimes academically we've seen those kinds of discourses as sometimes scare tactics. Sometimes they're, they're just flimsy attempts to, to help populations feel empowered, you know, like that they have some control in the face of something that seems not to offer the possibility of very much control at all. So I guess I just kind of coming around to the question here, are we, are we, are we right to feel so cynical when neoliberal governments try to get us to solve these complex social problems through what is essentially a kind of a self-regulation or, or are we, do we need some more intellectual dexterity here in the face of that kind of question? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, to me, there's different features of this question that should probably be addressed separately. I mean, the mm -hmm. question of neoliberalism's, um, influence over, why it would make sense that people would accept something like social distancing so uh, readily, I think is one question. I think a second question is, I think there's something maybe contradictory in the question, but I'm not really sure. But it, Brad Evans and Julian Reed have done a lot of writing about how 
neoliberalism, contemporary neoliberalism, especially with reference to security or the lack thereof, um, is really about the exposure to danger. Um, and uh, it, it is about a certain kind of abandonment of the um, governmental pr uh, program of security provision uh, and leaving human beings to be exposed to danger uh, so that they will become more productive. I feel like that is slightly, um, I think, maybe contradictory to the idea that uh, somehow states um, and place us in a neoliberal form of subjectivity. Uh, it seems that there's a different maybe modality at work. And then connected to that, I think a third issue, which we should probably talk about too, is um, the emergence, the popularity amongst policymakers around this idea of resilience itself. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I think the first part of it, and I would, I would really, to be honest, be more interested in hearing what you have to say about the neoliberal part. Um, but it, se it seems to me that the, the reason that people uh, have not thought that social distancing is odd um, is because the individual, the individual nature, individualizing nature of uh, neoliberal politics and economics um, mm. has already well introduced that mode of living. Um, yeah. it, it has um, created human beings as a pointillism rather than a meshwork. Uh, That's really nicely put. I like that. I like that turn of phrase, pointillism for that. Thanks. You know, where, where we are um, already, I think, in a fairly measured way, socially distant. And uh, there's a lot of suspicion about uh, the danger that other people pose to us by virtue of the fact that we have been, um, you know, our, our so-called self-interest has been seized upon. And, um, but what do you think about that? What's, uh, well, yeah, I just, it's, it, it, it's funny you ask me that I noticed yet last night that, um, Ben Shapiro of all people was on Twitter kind of, um, wondering what the hell the government was up to and why they hadn't he wanted to know the schedule for the deployment nationwide of nationwide testing kits i'm <laughs> just like wow you know like i i know that these crises according to the naomi klein version of things and i'm not i'm not trying to gainsay her hypothesis here necessarily but um i know that from that perspective these crises are seized upon by the establishment by neoliberal experts, technocrats, whatever, to, to advance these, um, agendas under the cloak of, um, you know, some kind of emergency, but, you know, it, it strikes me in the same breath that sometimes you could have maybe these surprising opposing cognitive responses where even someone like Ben Shapiro is going to sort of overnight become a socialist, uh, on Twitter. <laughs> um, and, um, I mean, I'm sure he would absolutely want to challenge me to a debate on that assertion, but just, you know, <laughs> the, the, the logic of him asking where the kits are just strikes me as, as a, in a certain way. Um, but the social distancing thing and, and neoliberalism, I mean, it just, for me, um, it, it does sort of connect with a question I've had for a long time about what we do in critical IR um, where we often seem to want to, as Naomi Klein 
does in her own way, um, you know, speak truth to power, you know, challenge the way power is deployed in times of emergency. I, I understand the impulse to, if you will, deconstruct those kinds of rationalities, uh, the, the way rationalities um, address and interpolate catastrophe. Um, but you see elsewhere around the world countries that have done this very differently and and in a sense have used the the cover of emergency to advance what seemed to be very robust and very democratically oriented or maybe not democratically oriented but at least you know humanely oriented approaches south korea for example has stood out globally as a, a success story in all of this they use this method called um trace test and treat and I think they're testing something upwards on like 20,000 people a day. Um, and I'm not trying to sort of put you on the spot as an epidemiologist or whatever, because obviously we want to stay with the question of politics and, and the state. But there's a difficulty for me here in, in the sense that like, I understand why as critical IR theorists, we want to, 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 to take apart these rationalities. But at the same time, social distancing seems really, really um, flimsy as a way of dealing with what might be and what I've seen on online is some projections like millions of people may die in America as a result of this. Um, the South Koreans can get it right. They're using their state to make sure this is done the right way. Um, how, how, how as IR th critical IR theorists are we supposed to approach this? Well, I mean, I, it, you're right. I'm not an epidemiologist, but following the news, there have been several success stories. Uh, Singapore, I think, has another, uh, yeah. you know, ha has had a great uh, success rate from what I've understood. Um, Singapore is also essentially a totalitarian state. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. if we can just go back to the idea of social distancing for a minute, I think the... Um, the couplet social distancing is really a strange phrase that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it true, really yeah. just means, it really means self-isolating at as best you can and trying to keep a geographic distance of about six feet from other people who may be carrying a virulent disease and be pre-symptomatic. That's what that means. And, um, I, for one, uh, would like to have six feet of distance between myself and others in a moment like this. Uh, I don't know if that... Even on a normal day, Garner. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but I, I, I'm hesitant to give too much um, credence to this idea uh, of social distancing because I think as a couplet, it sounds... Uh, it, it's easy to enfold into that couplet more work than what it's intended to do. And uh, it to me, that's different than the capacity of a state to be able to test uh, um, large amounts of people or not. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is just, it frankly seems like good advice um, to keep your distance in a moment where even epidemiologists aren't sure the full extent right. for uh, uh, of how um, virulent 
this disease is. And uh, that seems that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Have you followed the um, sort of language out of 10 Downing Street where it, it, they're advocating this uh, approach called herd immunity? They They basically are kind of hoping the illness will move quickly through the population so that they build up some kind of capacity to fight some anticipated second wave of, of the disease. It, that, that seems to me to be profoundly uh, not just laissez-faire, but um, awful. Well, yeah. It uh, If you look at like the the Spanish flu, 1918, 1919, um, it, it worked something like that, uh, where, uh, you know, viruses, um, they mutate and they mutate as almost a matter of, uh, survival. And, um, so there is some thinking as far as I understand that people who have um, endured the illness have some sort of resistance to it in most cases uh, when it mutates. And often when it mutates, it becomes more virulent. Um, mm. I, I, you know, I don't know much more than that about it, uh, but it is, there is a, there, I have read um, that this idea did you call it herd immunization yeah herd immunity yeah. It's, it's a strange one to me because it seems like uh, again i'm not an expert and i'm sure there'll be people listening to this who who may want to tweet me uh, they're welcome to do so um the the uh, twitter address is at occupy ir theory um so if they have more insight on this they, they can certainly let us know but the um the thing that strikes me is like, I, it's not like the South Korean approach won't result in herd immunity as well. It, the, the, the issue is the speed at which, I mean, people talk about shifting the curve or, or, or um, softening the curve uh, as a sort of a way of approaching this, wherein, as I understand it, the idea is, look, the, the illness will move through the population one way or another. That's unavoidable. Uh, what you're actually trying to achieve here is uh, a slow move through the population so that your hospital services are not overwhelmed such as they are right now, for example, in Italy, where it, the disease came quick and no mitigating strategies were in place. Now, my understanding is, of course, that the social distancing comes into play there because, it, 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 it again, it slows down what is considered ultimately inevitable. Um, where the South Koreans are doing it better is that they are rigorously testing people um, and they have a fairly decent uh, error detection rate and isolating people at home who have the illness, again, to just slow down the spread. And, and that is working for them. Um, the herd immunity approach, it, it seems to be sort of the Boris Johnson's way of, of saying like, okay, look, we're not really going to uh, do much here. Uh, they're already turning away people over 65 from hospitals, according to some reports. Um, 
it 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 does seem to be very um laissez-faire and and um like a like an uh, like an excuse for inaction almost you know so it would be like so to go back to uh brad evans and julian reed the way that you're understanding that uh the british response is to essentially expose uh british people to to the illness yeah and yeah. and and uh, the hope uh, that's a, a grotesque way to put it but the 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 mm. goal being that um it will move through the populace and um run its course basically that's kind of what i understand boris johnson to be arguing for uh i know there's a lot of people sounding pretty outraged by it right now um and uh, I just don't understand how they're expecting it to be different to Italy in that sense. You know, Italy has, you know, for, for whatever mistakes they've made, at the very least, they have a national healthcare service. Um, it varies region by region, but they have it. And um, they are trying to to manage it in a, in a, in a sort of a, in an orchestrated way. Uh, I was listening to the... Radio Warner um, free episode, uh, which I would encourage everyone listening to this to check out. You can just find it on Patreon. Um, you know, the, they are interviewing there someone who has been looking at the the state's response to the Italian crisis, um, and uh, you know, it, it it's it's been bad there, but it's not like they don't have a plan, and they are, you know, limiting village to village travel, town to town travel, you know, it's, it's, um, that they are again, you know, just trying to sort of use the capacity, uh, capacities of the state to, to prevent circulation of people right now, which I think seems to be important. Whereas I just, I'm from this herd immunity thing just seems to be kind of like, okay, well, I guess there's not much we can do about it. Um, good luck everyone. (laughs) Yeah. That runs contrary to almost everything that I understand the I guess best practices of containment. Um, yeah, you know, I, that's that's really surprising to me. Yeah, um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's strange because um, just in terms of the the data, um, it's who's infected <clears throat> and what the mortality rates are uh, are stark in terms of age groups. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, I don't want to help rationalize that, but, um, that, that runs contrary to everything that I've ever read about how it is that you mobilize against something like this. Garnet, I've, I've kept you on here for over an hour now, and I, I, I guess I want to start to move towards some kind of conclusion. Um, and this is an unfair question in some ways, but, uh, I think you will have an answer for me. So... I'll just, um, I'll put it on the table for you. Um, One of the, I guess I'm kind of trying to get to a question here where um, I I would ask you to consider whether your work is or is not of a, what what might be popularly referred to as a deconstructive uh, method. And... um, I know that there's a wide perception out there. Uh, there's a hot debate, if you will, among many in the activist left um, as to whether or not 
deconstruction or sometimes called postmodernism it, it is is a sort of um itself a symptomatic discourse or method in the face of what might otherwise be called you know the the total defeat of our imagination by capitalism i guess uh, for listeners familiar i'm kind of um, echoing mark fisher there but not to get stuck into that so much i just I, I guess the, the, the question is, against the background of these disasters, coronavirus, global warming, four more years of Trump, whatever it is, right? You know, when, when populations feel these moments threaten their lives, threaten their well-being, and demand action from political institutions, from their states, how is it that this... And again, you, you'll probably want to qualify this, but how is it that the the impulse to deconstruct catastrophism is 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 politically valid here? Um, you know, given that Trump yesterday declared a state of emergency and introduced in one fell swoop several policy solutions, which actually probably should have been and could have been introduced slowly and thereby preventing panic in grocery stores and things like that. How is it not the case that in a sense, a, a, a better catastrophism, more catastrophism, uh, but better catastrophism might actually be what we need? That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, just on a technical on a technical level, what I'm doing is not deconstruction. I mean, if by that we mean um, a Derridian methodology, uh, you know, meant to expose the sort of aporias and uh, that are embedded in certain kinds of meaning, but it, uh, it would be disingenuous to say that. I'm not doing something similar to that sometimes in my interpretive work. Uh, yeah. But it's not deconstruction because I come to my academic work from a different perspective, which is about working through um, concepts and which could easily be understood to be, um, you know, sort of rarefied philosophizing or something. Um, but I, I don't think that for me, the, the object of the work is, is not, um, uh, ivory tower in its final conclusion. Uh, but it begins from the premise that human beings are organized and operate through our connections to the world and the, framework through which we make sense in a very literal sense, how we make sense, uh, operates through concepts, which are organizations of very complex connections of information. Put very simply, that just means that, uh, we don't as human beings, uh, have a direct connection to the world without the filter of, um, of, conceptual knowledge. And so I think that, um, it's wrong when people say that this kind of work doesn't have a politics, for example. Um, 
I just yeah. think it's a really slow politics. Like I, I, uh-huh. I don't think that uh-huh. um, I don't think that somebody writes a new concept uh, or revises an old concept or in the way that uh, Spinoza loved to or Gilles Deleuze loved to take a concept, empty it of its content, fill it in with something new. You know, uh, that somebody uh, hears an idea revised, reorganized, and deployed, and and that they are starkly changed in their orientation to political life. I don't, I don't think that that's the outcome of work like this. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I do think in terms of a collective enterprise, um, that when people commit themselves to asking the questions of how it is that certain kinds of language and knowledge animate us, and therefore the decisions that we make, uh, that alter or shape our interests or our perceptions of interests, that that kind of work is being done all the time by all different kinds of actors. And there's no reason why people who yeah. are theoretically inclined shouldn't also be doing that work. And it doesn't mean that also, I should just add, it doesn't mean that when I do that work, that when I walk away from my computer and I enter into a different phase of my life, that all I yeah. am doing is uh, conceptual work, you know, like, uh, I think that, for example, I think my teaching is, is political in nature and it's underwritten by my own, um, that now decades long, uh, education in, um, a very, I would think refined, uh, um, interpretation of concepts that organize our political environments. And to the extent that my students don't, um, retain all of that knowledge, they still, uh, they still have the capacity through engagement with that kind of work to refine their own thinking and go upon, go, you know, on their own paths in life and life. And, uh, hopefully would have the ability to have a more nuanced understanding of their responsibility to other people, for example. Uh, yeah. and that, that, um, is worthwhile. I yeah, think I yeah. think where 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 this work uh, to to be autocritical, where this work um, is more politically problematic, I think, is when people lose sight of the actual heavy lifting that conceptual work is supposed to do, one, or they think that that con- that conceptual work is the only work. Uh, and so uh, in the first category, you get someone uh, who might um, undertake to use um, complex conceptual ideas uh, in order to explain something that has very little relevance um, to what we care about. You know, instead of having a catastrophism or something like that, you know, I mean, you could imagine a catastrophism being deployed to understand, I don't know, um, something that you or yeah, I don't care about, it, 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 <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. No, but it, it's also just like, um, a different conversation for a different day maybe, but, but perhaps a place we can put down a flag and, 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 and maybe call it the end of a conversation that we seem to be living in this interregnum, uh, in the left or on the left where, if we can say something like Occupy Wall Street was the ultimate expression of the sort of, or the final expression, maybe in some ways, of the the post-68 new left movement, uh, which 
brought us so much in terms of the toolbox that we, you and I both use in our work where we seek to um, investigate rationalities of governance and, and, and uh, in so doing, hopefully create spaces for new, can we call them libertarian energies uh, to emerge uh, these these sorts of um, hopes are ultimately for a kind of a prefigurative politics, right? That we we change the hearts and minds around us so that the conditions of possibility of the state no longer pertain. Um, and then today, you just see like so many people, in a sense, um, maybe disappointed with Occupy, and it's I won't say failure, but certainly, you know. You know, Obama gave us Trump. You know, did, did Occupy do what it could have done to to, to turn during the Obama administration the ship around? Um, it didn't, and and so in a sense now we find ourselves entering into a different political moment—a moment where we seem to be entering the state, where we seem to be kind of in. A, uh, I'm going to butcher Foucault here in a minute, <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we if if anything the respond the challenge we seem to be responding to now is not so much to deconstruct governmentality but rather to hear Foucault's challenge which was to invent a socialist governmentality or to create a governmentality of our own that we can actually use um a, 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 as a positive program for government and um i i i just wonder how these two projects can relate to each other. You know, on the one hand, yes, we definitely, there's a, there's a catastrophism, a neoliberal catastrophism, if we can join with Naomi Klein for a moment, you know, that we desperately need to deconstruct. But there's also the catastrophism that we hope for, right? The, the, the way that we would uh, dream of a society where, our utopia where, should that asteroid come, we can respond to it in a dignified, humanitarian, dare I even say Marxist way. You know, e even in utopia, there will be catastrophes. So we need to have a discourse that can accept that. Yeah. I'm, Did I lose you? No, no, I'm here. I just, it's <laughs> a horrible there question. Was, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what the question really was, but for me, um, Let me put it this way. For me, conceptual work is jargon um, of a very particular kind. Um, but, you know, just because it's jargon doesn't mean it's not useful. You know, like, like, you, like you wouldn't want to be on an operating table and have the surgeon turn to the person, you know, the, the surgical assistant, whatever they're called, and, and say, could you please hand me the the small shiny thing. It's very, very sharp. It has a handle on it. Um, I'm going to use it in order to make an incision on this uh, plane, which is composed of flesh. And, you know, they just say scalpel and the scalpel allows uh, for the work to be done. And, you know, even in your questions, it, the, the here, you know, you said um, even in the post 68 uh, atmosphere, you know, I mean, 19, May 1968, was in effect a conceptual revolution. 
It was uh, a response to a, a certain kind of leftist politics uh, being intervened upon literally ideologically by an alternative vision of what political action was, which was motivated by conceptual understandings of collective action, who uh, it was that were supposed to be the principal actors of politics, what kinds of institutions they were supposed to occupy or disassemble. Um, and those kinds of conceptual orientations became uh, poetic, they became amorous, they became violent, they, you know, they, in, in other words, had practical implications, uh, but they were made possible by shifts in the way that people thought about things. Mm -hmm. And, or to use another example that you, you've returned to Naomi Klein's name uh, repeatedly, uh, disaster yes, capitalism, yes. for example, is something that um, mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of non-academics are familiar with. It was a, you right. know, a, a, a book that um, sold many volumes, but, but also has just sort of seeped into uh, logic um, that people who are with it and read books uh, have a, um, a familiarity with. You know, she says in the first few book, a few few pages of that book, that yeah. she um, picked up the basic uh, inspiration from reading David Harvey, mm. and who had uh, in his writing on what he called conceptually accumulation by dispossession, uh, which um, which was a conceptual revision of Marx's uh, primitive accumulation as a response to Rosa Luxemburg, <laughs> you know, undertaken right. an empirical, when you read that, that work, uh, that imperialism work where that appears in David Harvey, it does begin conceptually and then becomes an empirical study of the international political e e economics, um, of the movement of money, uh, <clears throat> through, you know, uh, uh, the mm -hmm. institutions, very brass tacks, practical institutions of international politics. Naomi Klein reads this and decides that she is going to, as a journalist, a critical journalist, mm -hmm. deploy, uh, follow up on some developments that she is familiar with in order to extend to us an understanding of the way that uh, especially uh, certain uh, neoliberally inclined political actors have tended to seize on opportunities, which brings us to a conversation like this. And it, it, and it's and that that work I think has to be done and so you know that second part of what I meant was I, I think it has to be said by theorists uh, it is important but it's not the end of the game you know like it's really just right. um, it's it's very rote technical mechanic work that hopefully finds an audience by others and that it has a collective politics built into it by virtue of the fact that it's trying to contribute to what we're capable of thinking. And somebody who is on the ground organizing may have ways that they even revise those concepts to make them more practical, tactical, or strategic for themselves, you know? Um, but that's, yeah. that's the life of a concept and, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, yeah. Hey, even Ben Shapiro knows that now. So <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> well, um, listeners at home will not know this, but uh, this is a recording. This is an interview that you and I have been threatening to do for quite some time. So, uh, Garnet, I just want to say thank you so very much for giving your time today. Um, it's it's uh, always a pleasure to to speak with you, and um, 
you know, to, to, to get this in this context, in this moment, in, in a way, I'm sort of glad we delayed the episode so long because, uh, you know, it, it, it's such a fruitful conversation in this particular moment. So I hope whatever you are up to, you are staying safe and uh, taking care of the people close to you. And thank you so much for dipping into our little podcast universe here to to share your thoughts. Can I say one last thing that's been, been, well, been on my mind yeah. as a way of uh, closing on my own side? Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you about this. And I've been thinking a lot about something that um, seems to be obscured in the general, I guess, panic uh, happening now, which uh, I think is uh, in a way enacted by our conversation as friends and fellow travelers, you know, that um, the, these kinds of moments are also uh, not just public health, uh, biological crises, but they're also often mental health crises. And it's really important, I think, that people, as we distant socially uh, isolate and those kinds of things, um, check in on our people and, um, and remember that there is a community that uh, has to be rebuilt in moments like this and recreated. Uh, and maybe that's its own sort of um, bastardization of a kind of neoliberal dynamic in these moments, you know, that we have the capacity to um, remember that we love each other and that we have responsibilities in a, a community that, uh, that we can enrich each other even, even when we, we clearly don't know what the hell is going on. That's so. a great, that's a great note to end the interview, uh, Garnet. Thank you so much. Um, I would love if uh, we could have you on again, maybe in a few weeks to, uh, maybe, maybe retrospective on, on how things have been going here. Obviously we don't know what, what yet may come, but, um, it, 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 it should be interesting, uh, to, to have a further reflection on it. I think in, in due time. Yeah. Hopefully it'll only be a few weeks. I appreciate you, Nick. Be well. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks Garnet. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.